Welcome to the Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. It's good to see all of you. We're still in a vacation season. Summer vacations are on, and I think it's a much anticipated season for a lot of us. And I, I guess one of the reasons all of us look forward to it because some of our most memorable experiences are that to do with people and places that we love. Summer vacations have a way of doing that for us. And I keep going back to a feature that my phone has, and I'm sure most of your phones have this. Google does this for you. It categorizes all your pictures into clusters sometimes, and one way it does that is puts them into a group of people and places. And every time there's something that pops up, I go and click at it, and I'm reminded of an old video. And I was doing that recently, cherishing a vacation that we had many years back. And this was memorable and special to us because we actually hid details of the destination from the kids. And it was easier to do because this was 10 years back and they were much younger. And so there was a lot of anticipation, a lot of preparation. Uh, we told our friends not to tell them. We hid tickets away from them, but we still had to pack and we had to prepare. So there's a journey that you're going on, uh, but you really don't know what it's about. And so there's a whole lot of questions. It's, it's a bit painful. When and where? And they're pleading with you. And then you give them clues as you go along. Uh, you tell them maybe, you know, you, you need to take your shoes because there's going to be lots of walking. Or there's going to be a big bird park. There's going to be a zoo there. And then we kept us going for a long time. And when we, we pulled it off, I think, till we got to the airport, uh, and you get to the boarding gate, and they were old enough to read the destination that we're heading to, uh, and they figured where we were going. But the excitement still remained, because that was a place that they've heard about, but they've never been there. And, in, and so I was thinking of that trip, and it was, it was memorable. Uh, there was so much anticipation. There was so much preparation. And I said, it'll be lovely to do something like that. And as I was reading through Luke 12, in a sense, that is actually what this passage is doing for all of us. If you think through carefully, what Luke is doing is he's preparing us for a journey that we're on and telling us that there's a, there's a fascinating, glorious end that's coming up. And I, know, I don't know if you've seen that, because if you think about what we've done in the last four weeks from chapter 12 all the way till now, God is dealing with our greatest fears and our greatest worries and our anxieties. And he's saying, I want you to live life victoriously on this side of eternity, because it's all going to culminate into something special. And every time you look at the words of encouragement, you would find an allusion or a direct reference to a specific day and an event, the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. There's seven times when I counted just in this one chapter on this event that will be marked by the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, I, and that's where we draw our encouragement from. There are different things in the passage. So for example, you think of all the way from chapter one and you think of don't be anxious, don't, don't pretend, don't struggle with hypocrisy. Why? Because on that day, everything's going to be brought out into the light. You don't have to fear because when the Lord comes back, he will acknowledge you and he knows you and he's accepted you. So why look for man's acceptance? Or like the last two weeks, you'll be rich towards God. Don't fear about all your insecurities of the future and don't, don't try and hold up things for yourself. Why? Because God has something greater in store for you. So use all that you have for his glory because the kingdom is here. So sell your possessions, give it to the poor, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And what he's pointing us to is actually in that direction, trying to draw attention to a person and a place, an even better destination that all of this will culminate to. 
And so uh, that's the context in which I want you to think of the opening verse that was read to you, verse 35, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning. And what we want to do over here is, even as we wait, longing for this master to come, and I hope you are, and we want to hear those words, good and faithful servant. As much as I want us to see from this text on what it looks like for a good and faithful servant to wait, I want us to see also along with that that our hope is anchored and we're motivated to do so because of a good and gracious and faithful God who's coming back for us. So here's how we'll walk through the text together from 35. Uh, if you look at your Bibles on the printouts that you'll have, you'll notice a repetition of a sentence three times. And that is verse 37, 38, and 43. And specifically, three times he repeats these words, it will be good for those servants whom the master finds. And so those three sentences, or those three aspects in which the master wants to find us waiting for him, will form our three points for today. And so our three points will be, if you're taking notes, one, waiting as servants in anticipation, two, waiting as servants who are ready, and three, waiting as servants who are faithful. So look at the first one with me, waiting as servants with anticipation. So when you look at verse 1, the word for be dressed, and some of your versions actually have a better way of spelling that out. It says, gird up, I don't know if you have that, maybe the King James Version has it, saying gird up your loins. And those days when you read it, you, understand, you easily relate it to what he meant by that, because in those days your clothing was a long flowing robe, in simple words to put it. And so um, you think of it maybe like a bed sheet with four holes in it, as simple as that. One where you, you put over your head, two to stick your hands out, and one big one at the bottom, pretty comfortable. Unlike some of the clothes that takes us several minutes to get into today. And so when people wore that at that time, it, it, it had a lot of comfort, it was easy, and it had a problem sometimes when you have to get out in the field, if you're going to get into action, if you have to run swiftly or do something like that, your, your long rope came in the way, and so you were expected to put it together and tie a sash around it. And so dress up, be ready, be prepared for action. Now it's not just a cultural reference that comes to mind for them and for us. We think of the same word actually that we've heard before in Scripture. And if you look it up, you'll see in Exodus 12, there was a significant event when the Passover was going to happen. God says, this is how I want you to wait. Gird up your loins, be ready, be prepared for action. Why? Because their deliverance was just around the corner. You remember that? And so on that night, the Lord was going to destroy all of Egypt. And only those who had the sign of the blood of the lamb smeared in front of their houses, only they were going to be spared. And so you had to rush, you had to, you had to leave quickly. And so you didn't have time to make bread with yeast. And so you had to be ready with your, with your clothes in that manner, with a sash around it, ready for action. And that is a thought over here. And even as you think of that, that is sort of what is foreshadowed. That redemption that Israel tasted is a foreshadow of what we're looking at now, what we're reminded of now. That God's deliverance was around the corner. That, that, was, that lamb that was slain was pointing to the actual lamb that would be slain, Jesus Christ. And now he is telling them because he knows that time has come. And he knows there's only one event left now for all of history to sort of converge. Not just his death and his resurrection, but his return. And he says, now during that waiting period when you wait as servants, this is how he wants us to wait. Be prepared. What else do you see there? Now I want us to also think of this and uh, not to forget the truth that as much as we say this is a posture in which we wait for the Lord, a posture of our hearts, it's not a posture where you simply wait doing nothing. It's a preparation on the inside 
and that's expressed in our lives. How do we wait? We, we should not be anxious like we read maybe in the last two weeks. And let me just read out this verse for you from Luke 21 and verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. You notice? He says this is how you should wait because anxieties can do something to us. It almost gets you to the stage of being a person who's drunk, who's lost the reality of being sober-minded. You've lost this real reason to hope and this, and this reality that his second coming is close to us. And so that is the action that God lays on our, on our hearts over here. And then you look through those verses and he says, keep your lamps burning. And in verse 37, he says, it'll be good for those servants who find their master watching when he comes. You see the picture? It's a picture of a master who's returning back. And from a distance, he notices that his, that his, that his servants are waiting eagerly for him. Why? Because the lights are not off and the lamps are all ablaze. And as he comes closer, he's, he's delighted with that reality. And you have to ask yourself, saying, you know, is that true in our homes? If the Lord looks at us individually or collectively as a church, would he see that of us? I remember at some point, I've seen this as a kid, and a lot of people talk about it, that several decades back, if you walked around in some parts of India, if you just walked through the streets early in the morning, if you, if you got up that early enough before sunrise and you looked out, you would actually see different homes uh, where the lights were on. Not lights, were lamps were actually going off. And especially in Christian homes, they were sitting there because they delighted in God's word. When the world slept in darkness, they would wake up and they would delight in reading scriptures. You don't see that anymore today, isn't it? In fact, you see the contrary. You see lights up pretty late in the night. They never turn on in the morning. But don't be, don't be deceived. Those lights that you see at night are not because they're delighting in God's word, not because their lamps are burning, but it's a different light that's going off because many screens are lit and people are lost in an unreal digital world. Well, that's not the image over here. This is an image that's asking us, saying, are you lit, are your hearts lit by the gospel, by what God has done for you? If you, your lambs will be burning and your wick will never run dry, if your, the oil of gladness is flowing in your hearts because of what the Lord has done for you, because His love and His grace is always flowing through in our hearts and you can never comprehend what He's done for you. But if you've embraced religion and not the gospel, then all of this will feel like a discipline. Coming to church and reading scripture is just a discipline. Your wicks keep running dry again and again and again. And when you... Think of that and you say, okay, so what does it look like in my life? What are the choices that I'm making? Like maybe David says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Are there daily choices in my life that reflect the fact that this is true for me? Am I increasingly, like in Luke 12, moving away from anxieties, moving away from treasures of the world? And is that a way in which my life is burning? Because I'm called to be the light of the world, isn't it? And can, will the Lord see that in my heart when he comes and he says, I know what these people treasure, they treasure their master. And again, in verse 36, he says, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding. That little, that little word over there, wedding, has some significance to it because in those days, unlike today, you don't go for a wedding and come back as soon as you finish your meal and that little ceremony. But a wedding could last for several days and you often didn't know when your master was coming back. So the picture is pretty different. It's one which says, so when he comes back and he knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. 
Do you see that? There's, there's a great anticipation and the door, when he knocks on the door, you don't have a calling bell that goes off across the house, but they're paying attention and they're longing for him. He knocks and they immediately open the door for him. Almost like a dad who goes off on a trip and when he comes back, ring the bell once and you can hear on the inside, it's dad. And the kids come running and they open the door. That's a kind of house. And I don't know if your house is like that when you think of the Lord's coming. Or like some homes, the dad comes back and they ring the bell several times and then from the outside you can hear, can someone get the door please? That happens quite often in some homes, isn't it? And I don't know which one it is, but you have to ask yourself, what has kept me so distracted? What has come in the way of my life to remove this anticipation? Am I waiting like this when I will immediately receive my master? And I think what affects our, our posture of being Little children waiting for the father or little flock waiting for their shepherd who's coming back is an identity crisis at the heart of it. We're not little children. We're not little flock anymore. Why? Because as we wait slowly, you forget about these treasures and the world gives you titles and ways in which they want to recognize you. We're not little anymore. And so you call, your identity shifts from that to something else in the way which, in which man honors you. And when that happens, then your treasure shifted. You're distracted. You don't want to wait. You're not longing for everything that the Father said and your heart is now in a different place. And I love the collective way in which he's always referring to us over here. Last week, we reminded ourselves of the fact saying, little flock, he's ministering to us personally, but he's saying you do this together. Or little children waiting for the Father. And even here, it is like men waiting for their master. It's not one person, but it's many servants in a house waiting together for their master to come back. That's, that's good for us to do together, isn't it? Because we can encourage one another when your oil looks like it's running out, point people back to God's promises. When somebody's wick looks like it's running dry, speak to them and encourage them and, and check on them. And that is our prayer as a church. That we want to be a city on a hill. And it takes many lambs to do that. Because there's no way we can do this alone. And this is not going to happen on Sunday mornings alone, isn't it? Because this isn't some fuel station that you come to when your oil runs dry, fill it up, and then you go back again. That's not the intention at all. But this is men waiting like a servant, and the word used here is the lamps are burning. The word burning there is present continuous. It's always burning. It's almost like the lamp that you see back at the tabernacle. You see it in Leviticus, you see it in different parts of the Bible where it's always burning in the presence of the Lord, reminding them. And even when Israel goes to sleep, that their God is always present with them. And now he's left that mission with us. We have tasted God Emmanuel, and we are supposed to be the light of the world. And so my always burning, not just when I come here, but when I leave from here, is this truth, is this anticipation in my heart shaping my conversations? Maybe you get into a cab drive, or maybe that's your opportunity to talk to that guy and tell him. Maybe you're sitting on a flight and you're somehow trying to break the ice and tell the other person because on your heart, you're wondering, does this person know the Lord is coming soon? And quite often, you'll never get responses. Most of the time, that's what, that's what happens to me. People soon start pretending like they're yawning. They're trying to give you some hint saying, you know, can you stop talking to me? But that doesn't discourage us because we still are always in His presence and we never depart from God's mission. And so we're always burning and we're waiting. And then look at what he says in verse 37. He says, it'll be good for those servants when the master comes back and he finds them watching. What'll be good? Look at the description of the one who's coming back in the verse after that. 
He says, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Did you see that? It's not an easy verse to read, isn't it? This is telling us, this is actually speaking about the second coming. Now, at the first coming, it's difficult to think of Jesus in that scene when he goes around and he washes his disciples' feet and he's always a servant. But this is not that. This is the second coming. When he's coming in all his glory with angels and with flaming fire like Thessalonians describes for us, at that time, what is he saying? When he comes at that time, he will dress himself and play the role of a waiter, have you seated on the table and he will serve you. That is a blasphemous thought in most worldviews. We just wouldn't be able to imagine or think of their God like that. And I often struggle with passages like this, and I don't know how you reconcile with a text like this. Because sometimes I think of how he receives us when we meet him and he says, good and faithful servant, whatever we've done, what is that going to be in comparison to what the Lord has done to get us home? Or when he says, like in Zephaniah 3, 17, I will sing over you, I will delight over you, and you wonder, based on what, Lord? But he delights over us. Like last week, remember, little flock, why does he give us his kingdom? The father is pleased. He takes pleasure in such things. Or like in Isaiah 53, you read that, it pleased the father to bruise the son. It's a difficult passage to understand, but he's trying to show us his heart. Or like in this text, when he comes back and he will dress himself and he will serve you. How is he going to do that? Can you visualize that? Or do you like Peter struggle? You remember Peter? In Luke 5, he looks at the Lord in his boat and he says, this is not a man. And he says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And then later in Luke 9, when he actually, when it's revealed to him who this is, he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And then in, when you get John 13 and he comes to wash his feet, he says, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And the Lord says, well, if you don't, then you have no part with me. You don't understand what my glory is. You don't understand what my nature is. And if you don't get a good grip of this, then this isn't humility. This is a poor understanding of who God is. You need to accept the fact that this is part of God's nature. And that is who he is. The one that you see on Mount Sinai in all his glory was the same person that they saw when they met Jesus. Like in John 14, show us the Father. Take a good look at me. I have the same qualities as a father. And I will wash your feet. You mean, that's your nature? That's part of your glory? So when you read a passage maybe like Philippians 2, and you go back and you look from verse 6 and say, look at Christ, and we should have his mindset, and he descended, and he came down, and he took on human nature. Remember that descension is not any departure from his nature at all. He is absolutely divine. He's not reducing anything in his divinity. What he's doing is he's adding on humanity to that. And then he says, that is who I am. And this is how I have served you. And so for those of us who have benefited from the gospel, who have seen the Lord serving us, waiting as servants must not be unusual. Visualizing a God who will come, who has served us, and who will again serve us should not be difficult. We should start reshaping our minds because we don't have such fallen categories of a servant king, isn't it? We don't have that category in our minds. Oh, you're the head of the house means I'm the one who can call the shots. That's how we understand head of the house. You're a vice president at your workplace, which means I'm better and I can look down on others. And so we don't understand this and God is trying to show us, how are you anticipating? What are you waiting for? And when you wait as servants eagerly for the master, what's our motivation when we look at this unit? 
He served me, the one who's coming back as a servant, and the Father is putting his DNA in me, so I will too wait with great anticipation as a servant. And you read on, and the next time in verse 38, again you see a repetition of that sentence. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready when he comes in the second or the third watch of the night. Bring us to the second point, waiting as servants who are ready. Waiting as servants who are ready. You look at verse 38 to 40 and you will see this emphasis on the fact that his coming is an unexpected coming. That's a theme we see throughout scripture, isn't it? And he's coming, he's coming, and his coming is near. And when will it come? When you don't expect it. That's the only clue that we have. Like the words over here, like a thief in the night. So even if he comes in the second or the third watch, which is broadly speaking from maybe 9 p.m. all the way to 3 a.m., when he comes, you're ready. But the image is not one of a master who's coming back saying, I want to see you with red eyes, you haven't slept all night. No, he cares. This is more of an inner posture of an eagerness and a preparedness and an anticipation. The last thought when you go to sleep is praise God. The first thought when you wake up is praise God. And so that is a thought over here, like a thief in the night. You know, I recall my first visit to my wife's place after we were married. And uh, this was back in India. And I remember uh, going to sleep that night. And at that point, my mother-in-law did something that I didn't understand. She put a stick beside her and stuck a big knife under her pillow. And I was on my best behavior. And I looked at that and I was wondering what was coming my way. But I looked at her uh, a little strangely and she immediately picked up the clue. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I want you to know that we don't live in such a safe part of town. I've heard there's some burglaries around and I usually do this, especially because her husband wasn't there at that time. And so he said, she said, uh, and I've had an experience in the past, so this is just my way of being prepared or this is my way of scaring a thief if he comes. I still didn't get it. And I said, why the big knife under your pillow? And she said, you're right, put it under your pillow. Now, as much as that was a light moment, I should admit that that night I spent a lot of time actually thinking of what if a thief actually showed up. You see, a whole lot of us are dominated by such choices in life, isn't it? Insecurity. You've got dogs around the house, you lock your door twice, you hear a little noise at home, you wake up immediately. You've got a whole lot of passwords to protect everything. And these locks are not just on the outside, it's on the inside as well, isn't it? Because if I unlock my heart, if I'm just myself in front of all of you, you'll rob me of all my dignity. So I won't do that. And if I just let you know some realities, or what if I tell you, what if we started telling each other what our income was? That'll be horrible as well. We have to hide a whole lot of things because then missionaries will come by and rob you of your wealth. We've got a whole lot of reasons. And when you live in an unreal world like that, full of insecurities and you make such choices, how much more should the real imminent coming of the Lord Jesus cause us to live in boldness and in freedom? When I come like a thief in the night, he's not coming to rob us, but he's coming to actually give us life in abundance because it's the enemy who's trying to steal, kill and destroy things from us, like in John 10.10. 10. But you keep that in mind and say, Lord, what is this return? Does it instill a sense of fear in me? Or is it, does it actually produce a good sense of suspense? I know you're coming, Lord, but when is it? And I find encouragement from these words in how he describes his coming because the words used there are, the Son of Man will come at a time you do not expect him. So it's not just I'm coming, but who's coming? The, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who will judge every nation, the Son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, but also the Son of Man. A title back from Daniel, and we've looked at this before, reminding us 
speaking of his divinity but also speaking of his humanity that gives us incredible assurance when you think about it isn't it saying this is the one who has come and who became a man and actually when he comes back he's still going to be the god man jesus christ let me read out acts 1:11 to you men of galilee this is at his ascension men of galilee this jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven so it will be the same incarnate son of mary who they saw in his glorified state who is coming back and it is this human jesus in whose likeness you and i will be made perfect Remember 1 John go back and see chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 for when we see him we will be like him and that gives us incredible hope isn't it John tells us when you read that that gives us incredible hope why because it is this god man jesus and his return that anchors a whole lot of confidence and assurance in us why because he's the one who represents us he doesn't just sit there and direct us but remember like in hebrews 4:15 why do we go with confidence before his throne room because he struggled in every way was tempted in every way and yet was found without sin because he's fully man and at the same time he's fully god that is why on the cross when he died the cost was infinite because it was god himself paying for it and so the father was satisfied and so keep that in mind and say if this is the son of man that luke wants me to see who came to seek and save the lost and if i was somebody who was lost why would i be fearful i know i was lost and if this is the god man jesus christ who came and is coming back why will i not look forward to it why is it not spoken in our homes why are we not prepared and eagerly working all that we have towards this glorious event and you want to think about that and see if it's true in our lives and at this point peter now raises a question 41 lord are you telling this parable to us or to everyone I think he's got all of us in mind too as well in some way when he asks that bring us to third point waiting as servants who are faithful waiting as servants who are faithful because look at the lord's response in 42 the lord answered who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master put in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time you know this verse was very popular with the jews and and with the jews and it's quoted in several jewish writings and it's always referred back this verse in 1240 it was always taken back to joseph and you go back and you read joseph's account in genesis 39 and you'll see actually the same words there wise and faithful servant and god put all positions under his charge and quite often this this character of joseph is brought up in a different context people come and say hey, you know what what's wrong in climbing the ladder because joseph was up there as a prime minister isn't it that's the reason why people ask that and it's a sure it can't be wrong but remember in the kingdom that all of us are actually down there all of us are called to be the least amongst all and so when you say what is wrong in being up there's something in our minds that don't get this if it is up in terms of a function and nothing to do with your position and who you are and you're still the least amongst all then we're fine and moses is a great example of that because unlike most people today moses didn't not uh, just say moses joseph joseph didn't seek this position he was in a pit he was in the prison he was faithful in everything that we did and it was god who put him up there and that is clearly reflected in how he was a faithful steward and how he managed egypt and he listened to god and he acted on that and he was part of god's mission because you know what he did he wasn't just 
taking care of people when the famine was coming, but there was a much greater redemptive plan that God had. Because his brothers were going to come back there and settle in Goshen, and so they were preserved from death during the famine. And those 12 tribes therefore settled in Israel. One of them was Judah, and from the time of Judah would come the Messiah. And so Joseph, as a faithful steward, was part of God's mission. And all of us as faithful stewards are. Do you think of life like that? You've been put at your workplace, and you're a faithful steward with whatever God has given you, whether that's work, children, friends, family, whatever that is. And do you look at your mission in that sense? Do you think of your work like that? I've, I'm going to this workplace, and this can't be a coincidence. There must be a purpose that God has. And so when you preserve your integrity and all of that, it's not just some corporate mission value when people say, this guy is different. He doesn't do things that you do. Do you respond like Joseph saying, how can I do that? That would be a sin against God. No, we don't speak like that. That is not honoring God. That is not being a faithful steward because you are not reflecting God who placed you there for a purpose. We're ashamed to mention his name. That is far from this text. When you think of maybe your children, when you think of all those conversations about career plans and, and aspirations that they have, do you at the heart of it constantly bring this back saying, listen, don't ever forget. If these are the talents and these are the skills or whatever's going on in your life, don't forget it all has to dovetail into this one purpose. Or even your wives. Is, is this how men think of why God has given you a wife? You know, when you get to those pearly gates one day, they're not going to stand there and say, hey, nice solitaire you bought your wife. That's not going to be the criteria. But did you wash her and present her blameless without the word? Did you serve her the way Christ served the church? Or youngsters, maybe friends that you have. Are you a good steward? Do you have a lot of good friends? And I always go down the list of good friends that I have and I stay in touch with and I say, have I really been a friend to them? Do I keep this gospel a secret? Those are eternal consequences. I can't call them my friends anymore unless I let them know. And so we want to be faithful stewards. And so you think of those three points so far and you say, Okay, so I want to be a servant who anticipates the Lord's coming. I want to anticipate his coming as a servant. Why? Because it's a servant king who's coming back. I want to now also be prepared. And I want to do this in a manner where I'm ready all the time. Why? Because I know the one who's coming back is the one who represents me. He's on my side. He's the one who purchased me. And now when I look, look at this text, I want to be a faithful servant. Why? I want to give all that I have. I want to take all my positions and use it for God's kingdom. Like we looked at last week, take my positions and invest it completely in God's plans. Why? Because that's how God dealt with me. He's a God who gives. Notice how he, what he does when he comes back. He says, what does the passage say over there? He says he will put you in charge of all possessions. Do you see that? He's not going to sit on a throne and say, okay, now worship me. I'm going to strip you of all your rights. Yes, there's going to be no sin. He delights in you. He elevates you. He wants you to be a co-heir with Christ. I want you to do what was originally planned in Genesis. I want you to have dominion. I want you to take charge. I want you to be vice generals of mine, taking care of everything, of all creation. And we know the extent to which he has gone to bring back that reality, isn't it? What has he given us? Like in Romans 8.32, for he who did not spare his own son, how much more graciously than with all things will he give us what we want? 
So keep that in mind and you say, okay, I want to be a faithful steward, but because the master's motivation is when I come back, I'm going to give you so much more. I don't know if that motivates you. When he comes back, there's going to be so much more that he puts me in charge of. Not in a bad sense. You know, sometimes people have this question saying, hey, brother, how does that matter? Because when you come back and you get a position in heaven, there'll be no jealousy, there'll be no pride, isn't it? When you speak about positions on earth, they say, who said that's bad? Wasn't Joseph there? When you speak positions in heaven, they say like, but that doesn't motivate us because we're not going to gloat in our positions anymore. It's true, we won't gloat. It'll be very unique because those who have a lot, those who, are, those who have some responsibilities in heaven, by the way, heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem is going to be a holy city where there are things to do. So all of us will have some responsibilities. It's not going to be a place where you're sitting on a cloud with a little tambourine singing. There's pictures on, of those angels that you have. Tear those and throw those up. That is not from the Bible. And so there'll be things that we're doing. And so suppose somebody is the mayor of a particular city. He's not going to say, look at me. I worked hard on earth. He's going to look at you and say, hey, you know what? I really think you can do a better job at this. And you're going to look at him and say, no, I'd love to see you in this position. You do. It's going to be a really strange conversation because for the first time we'll be talking like that with no sin in us. And the point of all this is not who's better. The point is, don't you want to be in a perfect place with a perfect king close up to him? I want to. Or somewhere in some distant place where you get to see the king once in a year. But close up, working with him, pleasing with him. And that's the thought over here. That's the thought even in Matthew 25. You be good with these things that I've given you. Here's your reward. What's a reward when you look carefully? Come, share in your master's happiness. It is that intimacy that the Bible wants to lay on our hearts. How much do you want to love Jesus? How involved do you want to be as a co-worker, as a co-heir of God himself? And so you keep that in mind and then read on and ask yourself saying, you know, is that all exciting to me? Does this even move me? The real prospect of what eternity is going to be like? Or this is just too distant for me. And some people feel like that. And so in verse 45, he says, suppose a servant says to himself, you know, all this is true, but my master is taking a long time in coming back. Do you feel like that? It's been a long time. Some of you might be saying, you know, this whole second coming, my grandparents were singing about it, nothing has happened. In fact, a lot of them asked Peter that question several centuries back. So you go back and you see Second Peter chapter 3, was four downwards, and they asked him this question, is coming, this coming, and this coming, nothing's going on. And Peter says, hey, God's timing is different. A thousand years is like a day. And by the way, God is not slow in keeping his promise. And why does Peter say he hasn't come? He says, because he does not want anyone to perish. And so when you see a delay now, you, you, you're tone with, I'm waiting for the Lord's return. But you also praise God saying, God, I'm so thankful it didn't happen today. Why? Because maybe your parents or your friends or your relatives or your colleagues still don't know the gospel. And you're, you're always torn between the two, like Paul saying, I'd rather depart now, but I want to be here because of you. I don't know if you feel like that. And that's the emotion of a believer who's a servant who's anticipating. But look at what this person here, who's got no desire, says. What does he say? He says, you know what? I'll beat the other servants, both men and women, to eat and drink and indulge. So this is a, it's not a servant. This is a person who wants to lord it over. This is a person who wants to indulge in that time saying, don't talk to me about the second coming. I'm having a party over here. And how am I going to do that? You told me God gave me a whole lot of things. Don't speak to me about that. 
I want to maximize what I have. I want to optimize everything that I have, my resources and my relationships. So what does he do? Notice, by the way, if you look at verse 41, it says, it was their food allowance. God gives this person their food allowance. God's given you a whole lot of things that actually was meant for others. But what did you do with it? And again in verse 44, it was his possessions. But these kind of people take ownership of it. Oh, thank you, Lord, for giving me so much. Now I can invest more, I can build more, I can plant more, and I can do all of that. And you look at that, and then the verse that follows that is a harsh warning. Saying he will come back suddenly and deal seriously with these people. And I don't know what categories those are for you. In some cases, it's, it's husbands who reduce their wives to objects of pleasure or just treat them with no respect. In some cases, maybe it's people who abuse domestic workers. Maybe in some cases it is. Now, by the way, look at these people. These are not people outside the church because he's a guy who is saying... My master, he knows his master is coming. So he has information that there's a master and is coming. But my master is taking a long time. So these are people who pretend to be sheep. But because they are truly not, it costs a whole lot of other sheep issues. Because you don't give. You don't share. You don't pour your hearts out. You don't widen your heart. And that is why this is dealt with seriously. This could be even leaders in ministry who want to abuse their position because they love power. They want to make their way into homes where there are weak-willed women. These are leaders maybe who want to dominate situations where they create a system where you can call all the shots at some point in time. And it's those kind of environments and God hates that. And so he says he will cut them to pieces and assign them a place with the unbelievers. That's where you always belonged. That's a harsh response there, isn't it? And that response, I think, reminds us of how precious God's sheep are to them. You don't deal with my people like that. You don't deal with my resources like that. And then he closes in verse 47. He says, a servant who knows the master will, master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be meet, beaten with many blows and the others will be beaten with a few blows. The point of all this, now this is a contrast from the Old Testament. It actually is drawn from Numbers 15. And you go back and you see 27 to 30 and you'll see there's unintentional sins and there's intentional sins. And this is how God deals with you. And he says, that the point of this being that last sentence, from him who has much, much will be demanded. So all of you who've been in Bible studies or have grown up in Christian homes, who've done sessions, who repeatedly read God's word every day, Remember, it comes, such knowledge comes with a responsibility. Such knowledge comes with great accountability. And so the thought process here is almost like maybe at home sometimes we do that. When the elder one does something, you, you just, that's not acceptable, isn't it? You're supposed to be an example. You know so much more than the others. And it comes from a system of fairness and justice in some sense. But I was reading through this text and I was reading rewards and blows and punishments and I said, what, what is the framework over here? I really don't get it because when I look at scripture, it says all of us deserve several blows, isn't it? Like Romans 3.10, all of us are unrighteous. No one is good. And so who's going to get a few blows and who's going to get many blows, Lord? How do I even understand this text? Until you keep reading on the gospel and you come to a point and you see every blow that you and I deserved was actually laid on his back. 
Like in Isaiah 53, that he was crushed and he suffered and he bore the punishment that you and I deserve. And if you've heard that and you've said, I know that truth, I know that's what God did for me, but you know his first coming doesn't move me, his second coming doesn't move me as well, it's not in my mind. What you're in essence saying is, that punishment that he took and that gospel hasn't moved me as yet, fair enough, I'll pay for the price myself. And that's why hell is a place that's eternal. Because you get punished and you get punished and you get punished because you never end up paying the price. Why? Because our cost of, pay, of sinning against a God who's infinitely set apart is massive. It's of infinite proportions. But that's not the case for us who hear the gospel week after week and believe in it, isn't it? That's not the case for us who want to wait like we looked at. We want to anticipate eagerly. We want to be servants. We want to serve others. We want to find joy in that because the one who's coming back is one who served us. We want to be ready at any point in time because the one who's coming back is the one who represented us. And he's on our side. He's the one who purchased us, the God-man, Jesus Christ. We want to be ones like this who are faithfully using all that we have for his resources. Why? Because this is a God who gave himself for us, so I will give joyfully to him. And so you keep that in mind and you think of what is it going to be like when the Lord returns? It's people and places that make most of our, our journey memorable. Now I want to close by reading a page from a book that I read. It's called Heaven by Randy Alk. Randy Alcorn, if I'm spelling it right. So just two minutes, bear with me as I read out this description of heaven and what it will be like when the Lord comes back. Now he's imagining this, but within the boundaries of scripture, but I love this. So here's the last part. It says, heaven released fury. It was the old world's last night. At the line of Judah's nod, Michael the angel raised his mighty sword and brought it down on the great dragon. Michael picked up his evil twin and cast the beast into a great pit. The vast armies of heaven's warriors cheered. Soldiers dropped their weapons. The crippled tossed their crutches and ran. The blind opened their eyes and saw. They pointed and shouted and danced, throwing their arms around one another, and knew that any now left on earth would be under the king's blood and could be fully trusted. The king gathered his children on his lap and he wiped away their tears. The sound of a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder shouted, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. All eyes turned to the king. The entire universe fell silent anticipating his words. I will turn the wastelands into a garden, the king announced. I will bring here the home I have made for you, my bride. There will be a new world, a life filled with blue-green world, greater than all that has ever been. The shadow lands are mine again, and I shall transform them. My kingdom has come, my will be done. Winter is over, and spring is here at last. A great roar from, from the vast crowd came about. The king raised his hands upon seeing those scars on his hands, the cheering crowds remembered the unthinkable cost of this great celebration. The multitudes innumerable began to sing the song for which they had been made. When the song was complete, the audience of one stood 
raised his arms and then clapped his scarred hands together in a thundering applause shaking ground and sky. His applause went on and on, unstoppable and unstoppable. Every one of them realized something with undiminished clarity. In that instant, they wondered why they had not seen it all along. What they knew in that moment in every fiber of their beings was that this person and this place were all that they had ever longed for and ever would. You know, every time we long for His coming and we do His will and we're faithful, and every relationship that we're faithful with will give us a foretaste of this place and this person that we're waiting for. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.